We are in Exodus chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They are all already almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod which you have struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Uh, This is a crucial chapter in Israel's history. Um, It's... uh, alluded to or directly referenced in many places in scripture Uh, Psalm 95 Hebrews chapter 4 um, a a turning point in the revelation of of, uh, God's redemptive works so for a quick background uh, just if you're not familiar with all this background just so we know we all know looking around the world there's something desperately wrong with our world we're, we're enslaved to the bondage of sin and death and misery, and you just see it all around us. Um, this all comes, of course, from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Uh, from the day that man fell in the garden, man has been placed under hard bondage. He's enslaved to the kingdom of the devil who has usurped the place of God. This was pictured perfectly in the bondage of the people of God, the nation of Israel, the church, uh, to Pharaoh. Uh, It describes it in uh, uh, the first part of the book of Exodus. And Exodus, of course, is about the going out. It's about the release of the uh, church of God from the bondage of Egypt, which pictures the release of the church of God from the bondage of the kingdom of the devil uh, by the proclamation of the gospel, which we do every day. Uh, That, as a side note, also... Uh, shows why the devil despises the preaching of the Word of God and despises the Word of God uh, and relentlessly attacks, attacks it and tries to destroy it. That's a side note. So God calls Moses then to deliver his people out of Egypt. He gives Moses all the instructions and hopefully you're familiar with the story. If not, go back and read the first few chapters of Exodus to familiarize yourself with this because it's important. One theme that you might miss going through it because it seems so minor, but it's absolutely crucial. That's the big stick, the rod that Moses carries in his hand. It was a shepherd's rod. But then on Mount Horeb, when Moses met with God at the burning bush, God used that rod as a sign of his power. The almighty, eternal, holy, just God is sending his power with Moses, symbolized in that rod. So it says when Moses went down to Egypt to fulfill his commission to deliver Israel, it says Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. So then the first thing that happens is Pharaoh, uh, his magicians, uh, 
uh, try to imitate uh, Moses and what Moses is doing. Moses takes the rod and casts it on the ground, and the rod turns into a serpent. The magicians do it, it turns into serpents, but the rod of God devours the serpents of Pharaoh. The idea that's being taught to Israel here in pictures is that God's power is above all. Uh, all the kingdoms, all the gods, all the demons, all the powers that are above this earth, he is absolutely sovereign in all that he does. The theme of the book of Exodus, as I've said many times before from the beginning to end, is that you might know me, that I am the Lord. Pharaoh finally knows the power of God when he's being buried under the Red Sea, and the end of the book, when God comes and descends into the tabernacle and his glory fills the tabernacle, he dwells with his people, giving the knowledge of the Lord in a completely different experiential way to God's people. They, of course, rebel against that, but that's another story. So, here's the rod of God being shown before Israel, before Pharaoh, as the power of God. Um, he stretches it out over the Nile, and the Nile turns to blood. And then uh, he stretches it out over the Nile, and frogs swarm the land. And those ten plagues of intense judgment, the last one being stretching out the rod and opening the Red Sea, and then stretching out the rod again, and the Red Sea crashes over the heads of Pharaoh and his horses and his chariots. That tremendous song uh, is sung in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. We learn about the, the Passover, the conquering of all of God's enemies, and... Israel, the people of God, are delivered to serve the Lord. Now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. In just a few days, God is going to meet with them there. He's going to establish his covenant there. He has done nothing but good for them. He's fed them. He's protected them. He's uh, given them food. He's provided for them. He's protected them from the most powerful nation, the most powerful weapons in the world. He's drowned them in the sea. But the most important thing, they're free they're free. They no longer have to pound bricks for Pharaoh day after day after day and year after year after year with no deliverance until they're dead. Now they're free to serve the living God and God is bringing them to their own land. By now, this rod of God is no longer a shepherd's staff. Now all of Israel knows what this rod is. All of Israel knows that it's his rod of justice and judgment uh, and his omnipotent power seen there uh, in the picture, the rod of God. It's a rod of God with the serpents that not even the prince of darkness can stand against because the power of God, he's the creator of all. What can stand against it? And so now Israel protected and under the protection of the rod of God, called repeatedly my people throughout all of the book of Exodus, but now they're getting thirsty. There's a thirst that people have that goes way beyond just physical thirst. Physical thirst is a great description of it. I got my water because I knew I'd get thirsty here. But the thirst is very much beyond that. As Jesus says, you can drink that water and you'll be thirsty again. I guarantee I'm going to be thirsty again. But even deeper than that, there is, I talk about this so often, there is a longing for beauty, for justice, for love, for uh, companionship, for respect, for significance, that our lives matter. And even more than that, there's a longing for something we can't quite put our fingers on. There's something wrong. I, said, I, I read the other day, someone said, we love our pets because they remind us of Eden. 
And I thought about that. I think that's a very beautiful thing. I love watching pictures of bunnies frolicking around with baby goats. And I think about the time back in Eden where there were lions and lambs lying down together. And the pets that God has given us, our, our dogs and our cats, are beautiful reminders that there's something missing in this world. We are not where we were created to be. There's this intense thirst. Of course, the scripture tells us what it is. We were made for fellowship with God, and we are out of fellowship with God. We were made for God to dwell with us and us to dwell with God, and that fellowship has been broken. But instead of seeking after God, and instead of seeking that to be restored, men and women spend their entire lives seeking to fill that thirst with things on the earth. Solomon calls it in the book of Ecclesiastes, the things under the sun. Um, And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Everything that we use to try and quench our thirst, and it never does. As beautiful and as wonderful as marriage is, it's a delightful thing when you're looking forward to marriage and finally the consummation of the marriage, and, and you're with your beloved and you gaze into her eyes and it's absolutely tremendous. There's always something that's just not quite right and so many men and women absolutely destroy their marriages because they're expecting the marriage supper of the lamb and instead they marry somebody who throws their socks on the floor and if we don't come to terms with that we will spend our entire lives fighting committing adultery chasing after sex drugs wealth power bitterness anger resentment hatred all symbolized by the nation of Israel right here when they had a very, very real thirst and no water. And so what did they do? They contended against Moses. The word contend is a legal action. They put him on trial. They put God on trial, they put him on trial, and they put God in the witness box on the defendant's stand, and they found him guilty. Why did God bring us out here to kill us? Moses, you did, they can't get to God, so they go after his minister. Moses, you did this to us. You brought us out here to kill us. Moses says, why are you contending with me? Why, why are you putting me on, on the defense? Why are you testing the Lord? Why are you demanding that God answer to your demands? God has entered into covenant with you. He's given you promises. Hold on to his promises. Don't put him in the defendant's box and make demands of him. Because what he has for you is so much greater than even water in the wilderness. He has fellowship with God for you because of covenant. But he will never, ever dance to your tune. Because he knows what you need more than you do. So Moses is expounding this with the nation of Israel, and they're waiting. It's bad. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's no water anywhere. There's millions of men, women, children, all of them thirsty, babies crying. No water anywhere. And from the eyes of the flesh, it's hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. And all of Israel, all of a sudden they get there and go, so um, what's, what's the plan? And Moses goes, this is where we're supposed to be. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire has stopped there, so they know they're supposed to camp there. They camp because there's nowhere else to go. 
but there's no water. And they get thirstier, and they get thirstier, and the shadow of death is getting closer and closer. There's nothing for them to do now from the eyes of the flesh except begin to die in the wilderness. And they're angry. When the world that they've known has collapsed, that's terrifying. Even if the world that they have known is Egypt. There was slavery there and hard bondage and the death of the babies, but now looking back, they knew where the water was. They knew where the food was. They knew what to expect. It was, in their view, safe. I talked about this in the sermon on Sunday. We feel safe inside our tombs. When outside the tomb, it's scary. It's, it's, we don't know what's out there, and we're terrified of it. Here, Israel was safe in their view in Egypt. Now they're outside of Egypt. And yeah, they don't have to work anymore, but what good is that when they're dying of thirst? What are we supposed to do? And before you judge Israel too harshly, look at your own life. Haven't you ever been in a place where you're like, and God, what am I supposed to do now? Why have you led me into this wilderness to just die? The world's collapsed. And that's the most terrifying place for Israel to be. And then the question that's always on our mind, where is God? Where is God? What is God doing? What's going on here? Is he good? How can God possibly be good when this is going on? When there's rot and corruption and filth and lies and slanders and accusations and the devil seems to be winning on every single corner. We're so thirsty, Lord, for justice, for love, for beauty, for safety, for security, for God's presence. And here we are in the wilderness dying of thirst. The church has had this question many times. The book of Psalms is full of it. The nation of Israel took it one step further. They put God on trial. They put God in the defendant's box. They made a case against God and demanded God appear and prove himself. That's what Moses meant when he says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You don't put God on trial. God is not in your defendant's box. But they demanded that God show himself up at the prisoner's dock and answer the charges. You brought us out here to die. You are not good. We won't serve you anymore. And of course they couldn't get at God. And so they attacked the representative of God. Moses himself, God's minister. And so Moses now is on trial. I think when he says they're about ready to stone me to God, I think he meant that literally. I think that he had already been tried by a kangaroo court. He had already been found guilty, and they were preparing the stones and his execution. The demand is simple. Moses, you said God was in our midst. He's not in our midst, obviously. We're dying of thirst. Therefore, you're a liar. You've lied in the name of God. Therefore, the death penalty is the result. And Moses warns them, and when the stones start coming out, and Moses, of course, is still, he's in a worse situation than Israel is. He's, where, where is God? Where is God? <laughs> is he going to show up? And he, he, but instead of railing against God and denying God's goodness, he cries out to the Lord. He cries out in verse number four, and he says, 
what shall I do with these people? What do you want me to do? Do you see what they're doing? I, in, in a few minutes, I'm going to be stoned and dead. What do you want me to do? And God gives him instructions. Get the rod. Wow. Go get the rod. And now he's carrying this rod of God's judgment through the camp of Israel as Israel has railed and rebelled and uh, picked up stones and cried out against the Lord, the entire congregation ready to stone him. And here comes Moses, the same guy that took that rod and held it over the Red Sea and it collapsed and, and slew all of the army of, of Pharaoh. That held it over the Nile and the frogs came out. And now Israel gets the point. We're just like the Egyptians. We're under God's judgment. We're liable for God's judgment. Can you imagine the terror that went through the camp when Moses comes with the rod? What's he going to do? At one point, Moses does take the rod and he opens up the earth and it swallows the sons of Korah. What's he going to do here? He takes the rod, he takes it to the front of the camp, and then God appears on the rock. This is a pre-incarnate vision of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ stands on the rock. He stands willingly in the prisoner's dock. And Moses takes the rod and he doesn't strike the people. He strikes the rock. And Paul says, and that rock was Christ. And then out from the rock flows the water and the people drink. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful picture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and that rock was Christ. Everybody drank from the rock, but no one drank by faith. No one understood it. Their carcasses died in the wilderness. They drank the water that the next day they're going to be thirsty again. God still provided that water, but he's given us a far greater water. When Pilate, when, when Jesus is brought before Pilate, all the people are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. See, they've also weighed Christ in the balances and found him wanting, just like they did with God in the, Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. God is not good. Look at this. He's not even conquering Romans. You know, this is an interesting thing, an interesting side note. I, I read the other day something that resonated with me. Uh, it was about tribalism. This is when people get together and they form groups. Uh, these are my people and these are not my, my people. These are my people, that's the, those are the others. And I talked about here in our country, our tribes are formed not by the people or the concepts or the things that we love, but by the people and the concepts that we hate. And the worst way to get in trouble with your tribe is to not hate the people that you're supposed to hate. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus when he was on the earth. Of course, he reached out to the Pharisees. He also reached out to the sinners. He also reached the publicans. He also reached the woman with her hair down. That shameless hair that was, she was washing his feet with. Doesn't he know what kind of a woman she is? She's an outsider. That was the problem. He was disrupting the tribe. He cannot be the Son of God because he doesn't keep our rules. He doesn't do things the way we're supposed to. We're still in bondage to the Romans. Women are still running around with their hair down. 
Tax collectors are still taking our money. If he was God, this wouldn't be happening. And so they cried out, crucify him, just like they picked up the stones to stone Moses. And then Pilate nailed him to the cross, and he died. The rod of God's judgment, when everything went black, the rod of God's judgment fell, just like it did in the wilderness, on God himself, Jesus Christ. And John says, they took the spear and they ran it into his side, and out of his side flowed blood and water. About 30 years ago, there's a little interesting thing that goes on in, in our modern American religion. Um, I worked uh, as a food and beverage trainer, a corporate trainer. I'd, everybody that came in, I'd do training seminars with them. And we all shared the same stories, the same, the same anecdotes, the same. If it worked, let's pass it on. We'd go to conferences, we'd pick up a motivational slogan or a phrase from a conference, and we'd bring it back and use it in our training classes. We did that all the time. The problem is preachers are doing that. They go off to conferences and they hear something in a conference and then they come back and they fill the pulpits with it. And after 30 or 40 years of doing this, people lose where the original idea came from or whether it's even true. One that I've heard my whole life, for instance, is that God breaks the legs of the lamb so that he can carry them very closely. There's no evidence that any Middle Eastern shepherd ever broke a lamb's leg. Somebody just said it 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and that went everywhere. Another one of those, I forget why I'm telling you this, but another one of those things is that the blood and water that flowed out of Jesus' side was for the purpose of showing us that Jesus really died because it was a doctor that said something about uh, under extreme duress, blood separates into the red corpuscles and the white corpuscles. I've never actually heard that happening anywhere else. Um, I think the spear going into Jesus' heart through his rib would be perfectly enough evidence that Jesus was dead. But John makes a point of stopping on the blood and the water and then swearing that he's telling the truth. He says, I was there. I saw it. It's true. If it was simply a biological process that would have happened to anybody being crucified under their extreme duress, John would not have paused over it. But it was important for him to pause over it because he was making an important point about blood, which isn't the topic of tonight's subject, but the water is. Water plays an important role throughout all of John's gospel. Next time you read the gospel of John, have this story in mind. This account of the water flowing from the rock. Jesus says, whoever believes on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This was on the day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, on the day that they were commemorating this feast. And so water was everywhere. The water that came out of this rock was the Holy Spirit that flowed from Jesus' side, in another figure of speech, poured out on the church on the day of Pentecost, a down payment of what we're really thirsty for, fellowship with God. And we can only find it at the foot of the cross. Out of his side flowed the blood and the water. And so throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to the woman at the well of Samaria and says, I will give you water that when you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Throughout everything, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. Um, and even John said he was speaking about the Spirit, which hasn't been given yet. And the Spirit is poured out on the church. This is the blood and water that's symbolized throughout the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. Not only was it blood, 
because the death penalty was paid and the rod of God struck Christ and death was taken away. But it was also the water, the spirit poured out on his church to quench our thirst, to draw our eyes to heaven, to give us that which we are truly longing for, which is eternal, perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. Under the sun, Solomon concludes in the book of Ecclesiastes, fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole end of man. But God is restoring us beyond the world under the sun. He's restoring us to fellowship, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the new heavens and the new earth where we will romp with our pets, uh, the lion and the lamb and the dog and the cat, but we will also, and far greater, embrace the one who carries his lambs in his bosom and never lets them go. Uh, it's a, a beautiful figure to be embraced by the Son of God. That's one used throughout Scripture. Um, all symbolized by the water flowing from the rock. So with that, let's close, and then we'll open it up to any questions. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that water that you are giving us and leading us to rest, as you have promised. So teach us, Father, not to test you, not to put you to the test, but to simply wait for you, even in the dry and thirsty land, to know that you haven't forsaken us, you haven't forgotten us, and you frequently tell us to wait. And so, Father, give us your spirit so that we will wait with patience until finally complete victory is ours. In Jesus' name, amen.